Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Dr. Marcus Kunalakis. Marcus is currently a fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Central European University in Budapest and a weekly foreign affairs columnist syndicated in 30 different newspapers. He is also married to Eleni Kunalakis, the current Lieutenant Governor of California. So I moved to Prague and really experienced the greatest government perhaps ever. Everything that you could imagine that would happen as the prison doors are thrown open happened in the streets of Prague. Today, we talk about everything from coronavirus to Syria to the Yugoslavian civil war. So I hope you enjoy. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a great time to be stuck at home because there are a million things going on. And I know you wear many hats, so lending it to the Slavic Connection, I really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And uh, I love the fact that there's a program called the Slavic Connection. (laughs) It it wasn't, I can't take credit for that. I want to make sure I don't get any credit. Um, But in terms of what we want to talk about today, there's obviously a million things. Um, First, your wife being Lieutenant Governor of California. This is obviously an exciting and somewhat perilous time to be in state governance. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about just how California has been dealing with the coronavirus, some pressures that Trump has been putting on California or any state. It's a strange time that everyone in the political spectrum is talking about states' rights. Right. Uh, So, you know, we're in some ways fortunate to be in California. Uh, And so uh, we've got a governor who's really gotten ahead of this rather quickly. We were the first state to go into lockdown. Our Bay Area cities were the first ones to call for what was called shelter in place, which was really stay at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's all paying off in terms of being able to flatten the curve, which is a term we all know and had never heard of a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago. Um, so from that perspective, we were lucky in that we acted quickly. We're lucky as a state, not just because we're the fifth largest economy uh, in the world, if we were our own independent nation state, but because we've also been running budget surpluses. So, you know, prior to this crisis, uh, the budget was at about a $22 billion surplus, which is, again, more than most states can call, claim and uh, is a real benefit to those who are in government and when you want to do bold, big, interesting things. That, of course, is all thrown up in the air now with this crisis. And and uh, it, and as anyone you'll talk to will say, it's unclear how it's going to evolve, how long it's going to take. Uh, but we do know what some of the things are that need to be done. And again, things that we had never likely thought about prior, you know, testing and tracing those two uh, issues that, that we have to get done properly and accurately so that people can go back to work. Um, as far as so those are the crises things we're going to be following these over time, uh, I hope. And I know that my wife and my and the governor are working very hard to really stay on top of this and make good, rational decisions, manage risk, because there are going to be risks when people go back to work and um, and try to get through this as well as we can. But 
we're all in this ship together uh, across the United States and around the world. And what do you think made California act so presciently? And you can say there's data, you can say that there was a better understanding of what was happening. We all kind of had the same information. And at the point that California made the decision, it was still unclear. I think there may be fewer than 100 cases, maybe outside of LA. It was very, you know, it was only in certain areas. We barely had any testing infrastructure. What metrics were being used? Or was this kind of just a gut decision that turned out pretty fortunate? Well, you know, I, I think there may have been a couple of factors, but one of them would probably be that uh, one of the hardest hit, earliest hit uh, counties was Santa Clara County, which is the heart of the Silicon Valley. And, and that area has a lot of direct relationship to Wuhan. And so the public health officials and had teamed up and said, look, what we see right now is concerning. We see these numbers suddenly arising within our own county. We've got to move, not tomorrow, but now. And um, they felt they had the authority to make the call, and they did. And, and then once that happened, you know, there's a real early adopter sort of attitude within our uh, within yeah. our society, which because I think it's also cultural, but within our society as well as within our political leadership, which is uh, they they defer to action uh, and uh, and default to being active, and so I think those two things together really got us moving quickly. Yeah, and it's one of those situations that anything you do that is before the metrics tell you to do it, it's going to be alarmist, but you can't wait until the data arises in this, in this situation. That's exactly right. I had written a fair amount about this stuff as well. Uh, I had been looking at pandemics and had done a number of radio programs and written a number of articles as early as four or five years ago. Actually, I mm. started doing this many years ago. Uh, so I was, uh, I was also attuned to these issues and I made sure that my concerns were passed along the chain of command. And at what point, so, I mean, considering you've done research on this, every two years or so, there's a buzzword. It's either Ebola, it was cholera in 2010, it was swine flu before that. What At what point did you realize, like, okay, wait, this actually has a critical mass. This is different than, you know, the biannual scare. This is something that is going to be real to American lives. Yeah, well, within our family, we're lucky because we have, while my wife and I are Greek Americans, uh, meaning we're born and raised in the United States, but our parents came from Greece, our two teenage sons are Mandarin speakers and have spent a fair amount of time in China. And so what they were listening to uh, was also concerning and they were just much more attuned to what was happening in China. So uh, some early warning systems within Mm -hmm. your own family can help in this regard. Uh, You're right about this. I mean, I wrote a piece about Zika uh, not too long ago. And in the intro to the piece, I wrote about this. uh, I I introed the lead to the column was about this telephone app called Plague. And I don't know if you know it, but Plague is- I used to play it when when I'd be in like the treadmill or something, I'd play it. Right. And so if if you know this app, you've already gone through the thinking of what of how quickly these things can move and what the parameters are for society and for industry to take to try and beat the game because the game wins when it infects the entire world and wipes you out as a civilization. So, um, you know, I guess 
gaming can become can be helpful in this particular instance. It definitely made me realize that Madagascar and Greenland are really hard to infect for playing <laughs> that exactly game. Right. Iceland did pretty well usually too. Yeah, right? typically. Yeah. And so, at what point did you realize that federally um, we were probably falling behind? Or I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know, how would you evaluate the the federal framework that has been put in place? Well, I don't even I'm not quite sure if it was the federal framework per se, but I'll I'll tell you when the president first became prominent on this issue, when he first started talking about it and and claimed that it wasn't something we had to be concerned with, that was when I knew I had to be really concerned. Um, It (laughs) seemed as if he was uh, appointing Mike Pence to take on a role that he saw as a loser role. Right. And, um, and then I was really concerned because once he was handing it off to somebody, uh, then uh, because he knew that there are, he suspected that there was no way to turn this into a win political right. or in terms of practical terms, then, then I, my hackles went up and my concern, you know, red lights started flashing. Yeah, there's no trophy for this because best case scenario, things remain the same. You know, yeah. there's not going to be a 10% stock market rise because we avoided it. Although there has been a 30% rise since it cratered, which is a whole nother podcast. Next time we talk, <laughs> I would love to do that. Uh, we can do that off air, but uh, it, it was strange to see Pence being the face of it, but it seems like Kushner was calling all the shots behind this, the scenes. Do you think that was an optics thing just to kind of isolate, you know, who's going to take the fall here, but who could actually get the credit if we handled this okay? Yeah, I think it's typical of this administration, right? Where the president, for his own reasons, really relies on very few people and trusts almost no one right. other than his instincts, which politically are quite adept and, and effective. Yeah. So um, this is straight out of the playbook of how he does everything, which is, you know, stick with those whom you really trust and know, uh, first and foremost yourself, and uh, and secondarily, so those who are close family members, and hand off anything that looks like it's going to be have any level of uh, blowback to someone who is expendable from your perspective. Right. Yeah, that would be a good lesson to most people. Trust yourself like Donald Trump, trust yourself and have a Mike Pence. You can put something on. <laughs> most people don't have a Mike Pence. <laughs> I don't I don't trust myself like Trump does. <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen a better, you know, visualization of globalization than coronavirus, just tracking where everything is going and people who didn't have a mind for this and actually seeing it happening. How do you think this is changing people's perspective of just where they are in the world, just how unisolated they are, even though, you know, there's been a bigger interest in more of a fortress America? Do you think it's making people stronger in their views for an isolationist policy or more understanding that we're way beyond that? So before I, I talk about their policies and whether they're becoming more nationalist and isolationist, I think what's important uh, globally is to understand that uh, most countries always feel as if they're vulnerable to larger geopolitical movements and the world at large. You know, when the United States sneezes, in this case coughs, uh, everybody else catches the coronavirus. And so, uh, or China, right, for that matter. And this is really uh, quite um, 
relevant because in this case it did come from China. So when China coughed this time, uh, but hid its cough behind its fist and was not sharing the the fact that it was ill, um, the rest of the world did suddenly catch this. So um, whether it's pandemic threats or war, um, the the reality is most countries are either in another nation's sphere of influence in some way, in a stronger or weaker way, um, they're oftentimes used as proxies and they're very well aware of it. And they're oftentimes very vulnerable to these international events. So I was listening recently to uh, the person who wrote um, the book, the novel World War Z, and he had an interesting analysis. Max Brooks, I believe. Yes, that's right. And he had an interesting analysis that in his book, those countries that did best at surviving this type of an event were those that were always on the edge of survival anyway. So South Korea, Taiwan, and Israel, right? Mm -hmm. They are constantly living their daily lives um, in a state of preparedness and, uh, and are ready for whatever it is that may come at them. Mm -hmm. And so sure enough, something like this comes at them and wow, did they jump to action and and take uh, effective measures? I, I listened to, uh, I think it was Invest Like the Best podcast, but a geopolitical analyst, Peter Zihan, said, World War Z is the single best book in geopolitics that's ever been written. It's for, good. For that <laughs> the movie, not so much. Right. Well, so that's two things that people have picked up at the Slavic Connection is get the app, your phone, iPhone app, Plague, and mm-hmm. read World War Z. <laughs> and there are some good moments in the movie. Uh, but in, I mean, in general, moving back a little bit, we've talked about how the U.S. handled this. How are we to evaluate how China handled this? Obviously, they shut down news early on, um, but we also saw you know, countries who had similar metrics doing nothing while China, I think around five or 6,000 cases, they went to full lockdown. And we can trust those numbers as much as we'd like. But it seems like they were more proactive and they took it more seriously than other countries. How, how are we supposed to look at China after this? Well, we have to first define what full lockdown is. Yes, people in Wuhan were not allowed to travel to other parts of China, but international travel was still allowed. And so I don't buy the argument because uh, infecting the rest of the world, especially during a time when traveling was, uh, was rather effective, people were leaving for Chinese New Year, the annual Lunar New Year celebration, And secondarily, there were those in Wuhan who knew that if they were infected or if they already were infected, that the chances of better healthcare service was outside of where they were at the the time. So I am holding China still culpable for this. While they may have prevented it from spreading to other parts of their nation, uh, they certainly did not take the same measures for the rest of the world. Do you think we'll ever, I mean, I'm inclined to trust Chinese numbers at this point, just because I think the numbers that are thrown out in the 50 to 100,000 death range, that's really difficult to cover up in this day and age. I don't think you can do that no matter how isolated your society is. Um, Where do you land on that conversation? So I think as far as urban numbers are concerned, I'm willing to accept some of the stuff coming out of China right now, but they have a very 
complex healthcare system around this HUCO system, which means you are only allowed to have healthcare in the area where you are registered to live and where you were brought up. So you are not allowed to cross uh, into other areas for healthcare servicing. Um, and that level of healthcare service is really patchy around the country and is also uh, dominated by those who uh, practice traditional medicine as much as they do practice in modern medicines. And I have experienced personally because my son was uh, last year in uh, last summer was in China where he had gotten ill and was forced to go into the both clinic and the hospital system and was able to experience and, and report back what some of that was like. And it is not a pretty sight. So yes, some of the urban numbers are probably accurate. The rest of the country, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And I've also seen recent stories. I saw a Fox News story yesterday talking about how they've confirmed that the virus was created in a Chinese laboratory. So whatever you know, you want to make it that you've written a lot about Chinese soft power in the past. I know. How do you think coronavirus is going to change global conceptions of soft power for China, Europe, and the U.S.? Yeah. Well, first of all, never believe anything you hear on Fox News, sure. um, and especially if they say it's confirmed, uh, because sources, sources <laughs> confirm. Sources confirm. Okay. Well, there you have it. Um, it's really just a disservice to our society and to any form of objective journalism, unfortunately. Um, but that's another topic as well. Sure. We'll talk about that when we talk about finance. Um, <laughs> so the soft power part of the equation is, uh, is something that's ongoing and that has been really embraced by the People's Republic and by the Communist Party. It is a a, 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 uh, an assertive, focused, and well-funded uh, effort by China to tell its story, to present its story, as it were, to the rest of the world. And these are the types of uh, terms that uh, Chairman Xi Jinping uses. And um, so any opportunity they have to project their uh, soft power, in this case, to distribute medical equipment, for example, to Italy or to other places, which are really, which were really um, desperate for them. That's that's going to be a good part of their story, uh, and they will counter whatever negative parts of the story, such as being responsible for bringing that virus to Italy, um, as much as they can. But but their their project is a much larger project, and it is a generational project. It is something that we really shouldn't just put into short term a short term understanding. It is really a, this perception of China as finally coming out of its century of humiliation and really being on the world stage in a in a in a place where they achieve their right their self-perceived rightful role as one of the main uh, great powers of uh, of the world along with Russia and the United States and eventually being able to achieve the role of primacy well how do you do that right part of it is you need a strong military to be able to do that you need a strong economy which they are well on their way to achieving or at least were prior to the coronavirus crisis and you need the world to be somewhat accepting of your narrative uh, and your system. 
that system is not one that uh, the West, the United States and its Western allies and its allies in the Pacific have ever really accepted. In fact, they see it as a threatening role because of its authoritarian structure and the like. So um, it's, a, it's a tough hill to climb, but, um, you know, it is a culture that is willing to take a long view on these things. So confounding the narrative where it is negative towards them and improving the narrative where there are opportunities to improve it are, are just a part of this soft power play. In terms of the U.S. side of things, you know, you made this comparison of FDR to Hoover to Trump to Obama. And I think Trump has been so dismissive of Obama's reliance on soft power for some good reasons that he's pretty much just leaned on the hard power metrics. There's a point where China is going to match our hard power. The soft power is much, like you said, they're working at it, but that's much more, you know, abstract. Do you think chucking soft power at this time is wise for Trump to do, considering it's our main sort of alpha over China? Um, how do you see that changing? And do you think coronavirus is going to hurt Trump in that respect? So there's there are formal types of hard power that are state driven. And then there are societal types of soft power that mm -hmm. seem to be the most effective. In other words, a free, open, creative, innovative society that creates games like Plague or creates, <laughs> uh, you know, um, whatever sort of uh, game or, or film that you can imagine um, and is has been responsible for some of the major technological developments over the last generation and a half, uh, there's, there's an appeal to that society. Right. And part of the reason why it remains innovative and creative and engaging and, and open and diverse uh, and I and I want to emphasize diversity because that is such an important part of the creative, innovative uh, components of of any society. I think, uh, and I would argue that, and I'm I am arguing that, <laughs> that diversity does not exist. Right. You know, in fact, where diversity exists in China, they put it in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. So um, that is not the way to develop. Uh, a society that is going to have an appeal worldwide. So while Donald Trump as a person and as a family, uh, the Trump family or as an enterprise may not hold an awful lot of soft power and attraction, uh, the United States of America and its population and its society holds tremendous attractive power to the rest of the world. And as long as we can maintain our features of government and checks and balances and all these things. And there's no reason why we we shouldn't. I mean, while they're being threatened, they're not being overthrown. Right. Um, you know, there's no reason why we still shouldn't hold, be that beacon, uh, that shining city on a hill for the rest of the world. I do not, so I, I used to live in Hungary. Uh, my wife was the US ambassador. And there were always lines outside of our embassy for people seeking visas. You do not see those types of lines outside of the Russian consulates or the Chinese consulates for people waiting to just champ at the bit to be able to go spend, you know, mm -hmm. a weekend in Shenzhen, you know, or um, any other parts of the country. Whereas people do want to visit L.A. and New York and San Francisco and Dallas. And you name it. Maybe less Dallas. No, I'm sorry. 
That, well, we're, we're in Austin. We're kind of no man's okay. land. Well, Austin, they definitely want to visit. And, I mean, the music scene. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that's been, that's characterized uh, the United States too in terms of exchange. You don't see exchange programs going to Moscow in, you know, a tenth of the rate that they do to the U.S. It is, it's such a subtle thing. Um, and it's also how coronavirus spread. It's the fact that people want to be in the U.S. from all over the world and they learn more about our culture and then you get something like this yeah um which yeah it's it's a difficult thing to grab your head around um i'm and glad by the way, we I, underwrite that so you know you the state part of the equation we underwrite a lot of that exchange through things like the fulbright program where i was on the board president obama had appointed me to be on this 12-member board and it was really a privilege to see and to read the types of proposals and research and, and uh, academic interests that exist around the world. And they wanted to come to the world's best higher education institutions. And they are nowhere but here. And I think uh, a co-host for our program was a Fulbright while you were running the program. So oh. I'm sure he gives his thanks to you. Well. Uh, but I am glad you brought up Hungary too, because I know uh, you've done work, uh, continue to do work, I believe as a senior fellow at the Central uh, European University in uh, Budapest. That has been a very complicated subject over the past few years. I don't know if you want to give a little brief history of it or just talk about your relationship to how Orban has been affecting the university. Um, but it's really a microcosm of what's been going on in Europe for the past few years. Yeah, well, certainly in Central Europe, right, where you have um, a number of leaders who are looking to consolidate power and to leverage a nationalist message. And the way they do that is multifold. Uh, it's the authoritarian playbook. You weaken those institutions that provide checks and balances, and they are anywhere from civil society to the judiciary branch to the media. Um, those that can actually have some uh, demand some level of accountability from its leadership. So, you know, when Orban came to power and just as they were taking over the European Union presidency, he changed the media laws. Uh, it didn't do him any favors. In fact, I would argue that it was a little clumsily done and it probably set him back on his project because it was, it was just as the entire European community was focused on Hungary and was coming to Hungary. So I think that backfired on him, but it, it also taught him how he had to manage the, uh, this playbook that he was executing. Um, he was very fortunate in that when he came to power in 2010, he had a two-thirds supermajority in parliament, which meant he could rubber stamp. Uh, he had a rubber stamp parliament. Um, he held that parliament and its members, most of them uh, members of his party that he led, uh, as hostage. Uh, he knew and they knew how much power he wielded over them. So um, so this is the, the suite of things are, that have occurred. Part of that has also been creating, um, uh, I would say, identifying uh, individuals and institutions that he could also go off, go after, and create uh, uh, as um, visible, symbolic uh, institutions that he wanted to undermine. And what better uh, person and institution from Victor Orban's perspective than George Soros and the university that he established, Central European University. And so from day one of his arriving 
in office, he's really had it out for CEU and for George Soros personally, creating things like the Soros laws and, and you know, putting up billboards, threatening, you know, with their implicit anti-Semitism um, and, and their outright uh, anti-financierism. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, really just pounding that message home and, and pounding it to a nation that he had already prepared for a nationalist message. So when you lived in Hungary, were you in Budapest? I mean, uh, Budapest too is like you know, the beautiful modern city. You would never think that someone like Viktor Orban would put his stamp on a place like that. So what you know, what was it like living there, and how shocking is it to see the current environment? So I did live there. I lived there uh, for almost four years, from 2010 to mid 2013. And uh, but I had been in Hungary a fair amount uh, from 1989 through 1991 uh, when I was uh, working for Newsweek, uh, and I was eventually based in Prague. But I had been there for the early, in fact, for the March 15, 1989 demonstration, the first large demonstration in Budapest since 1956. And so um, I, I'd watched the arc, and I'd gotten to know many of the dissidents, and and had experienced. Um, this move towards uh, a changeover from a communist government to one that was, uh, you know, heading towards liberal democracy, at least so we thought. Um, it's a beautiful town. He never really, you know, I think he's rather suspect of uh, Budapest because it is, there are elements of it that are more liberal. There are elements of it that are more international, more cosmopolitan. Uh, he's effectively marginalized those elements, and he's played essentially very well to the rest of the country, and particularly the countryside. So yes, come to Buddhist Pass. It's a it's a beautiful city. It is remarkable. It is one of the most beautifully laid out imperial cities in the world, with remarkable uh, landmarks, and you'll see them every time you watch a Viking cruise line advertisement on television. Um, there's a reason they use those photos. It is stunning. Uh, but um, at the same time, be prepared for something that may on its face look very normal and feel very comfortable. The people are friendly. The food is fine. You know, the beer is not plentiful, but wine is very good. Um, and so uh, you'll you'll have this cognitive dissonance of the, what you're seeing and feeling and how the place is run. I don't mean to move too quickly away from Hungary, but I would love to hear more about your experience um, as a journalist in the 80s, 90s era. I know you were in Moscow from 91, 92, and our last guest was actually uh, the Moscow Bureau Station Chief for U.S. News World Report from 86 to 91. So uh -huh. you're actually given a, a Jeff Trimble. Oh, yeah. Um, so you're actually given a nice little, uh, uh, I guess, an obituary to his time there. So, I mean, that's a crazy time to be in Moscow. I'm sure you have some interesting yeah. experience then well interestingly i'd been living in uh, then czechoslovakia uh okay. in prague for two years um uh, i had moved there so i was there for the revolution in the streets and a friend of mine had written uh, the book about our travels through eastern europe during this period called iron curtain rising my colleague peter lawfer who's a professor of journalism at the university of oregon and so he recounts a number of the stories of how we went from revolution to revolution, in essence, and demonstration to demonstration throughout Eastern Europe and 
Czechoslovakia and elsewhere. Um, but um, so I moved to Prague and really experienced the greatest government perhaps ever under the most uh, wonderful circumstances imaginable where there was just freedom and very little authority or responsibility. And so everything that you could imagine uh, that would happen as the prison doors are thrown open happened in the streets of Prague for a good six to eight months. And it was the freest I've ever felt in any society. Now, things eventually got more serious and sure. the country got a lot more responsible and serious about trying to, uh, you know, shore up uh, governance and authority and all those things. And they did so pretty successfully under Havo for a while. But um, but they too are now suffering the backlash of, uh, of the promise of democracy not delivering, or at least the promise of capitalism not delivering, and secondarily experiencing that those who were privileged prior to, uh, during the communist era, were able to leverage their international connections, their uh, relationship to finance and to government to really profit and benefit uh, in, in the other side of that revolution. So that's where I was prior to getting to Moscow and I had not been allowed visas to go to the Soviet Union for many years prior to that. And, uh, but one of the ambassadors who uh, really stood up to the coup in Moscow in August of 91 was the ambassador in, Czech, in Czechoslovakia at the time. And um, so uh, I was able to get my visa and got to Moscow post haste, uh, second day of the coup, and uh, got there with tanks in the street and hung <laughs> out at the at the uh, barricades, uh, you know, overnight with students who were, you know, trying to defend the White House, and it was a remarkable time. Didn't you get a drink with Yeltsin? Did you? Uh, I not so much. Well, I mean, I. If you're in Yeltsin's presence, you got to drink. I, know, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> pretty inebriated most of the time. Uh, I got to spend half my time during Gorbachev's uh, reign until mm -hmm. Christmas of eighty uh, of 91, and then half of it with Yeltsin as the leader of the country. And uh, we all were at the, uh, you know, at the Ministerstvo Inestrani Deal, which was the foreign ministry, and we would have our regular meetings there. During my time there, I also got to spend time uh, in Afghanistan, and I, I guess I shouldn't say got to. I, I, uh, I uh, asked to go down to Afghanistan uh, with the Soviets, and um, we went there during the end game, in essence, when Najibullah was still in power. Um, wow. and, now, and wrote a piece with my colleague Mark Bauman, uh, who mm -hmm. at the time was the ABC radio bureau chief, uh, and we did a piece for the Los Angeles Times Magazine titled Holy War Without End and uh, a fairly prescient headline, I'd say, <laughs> yeah. where we are today. Wow. What was it like in Afghanistan then? I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's not a garden spot. Uh, it is, uh, well, I, you know, I haven't been, my wife has been twice uh, when she was the ambassador in Hungary. She went once with the uh, defense minister of Hungary and then once with the Sakir, the, uh, with Jim Stavridis, who was the head of NATO at the time. So she went when the Americans were there and mm -hmm. I was there with the Soviets. Uh, with the Soviets, it was pretty, uh, pretty rough. Um, there were no infrastructure projects being put right. together. 
you know, you would drive along the highways and you would see shell casings of Katusha rockets on this, both either in the road itself or along the side of the road. You know, they, there was kind of a unspoken truce where people had to find what lines they were behind, you know, whether it was Abdullah Gul or, uh, you know, some of the other uh, warlords or, or Mujahideen. Uh, Rabbani was still active and others. So, but they all had their territory and they were trying to figure out how they were going to split up uh, Afghanistan once the Soviets uh, left. And so the reason, the reason I asked to go to Afghanistan is these, the Mujahideen came to Moscow and um, all these different factions. And so they were negotiating essentially the truce and the withdrawal of uh, the final Moscow um, advisors and forces that were still left there. And uh, we got to know, my colleagues and I got to know a few of these guys because we were there for that, for that meeting and uh, asked if we could uh, come down to, uh, to Afghanistan and meet with some of these Mujahideen as well. So we did. And, uh, and they lived in very dire circumstances, but they had their tribal areas, they had their forces and, um, and this is, of course, before the Taliban was. I mean, it's so interesting as a case study to look at Russia in Afghanistan and Russia in Syria. It's uh, they learned what they did in Afghanistan and did the exact opposite in Syria. Yes. And, you know, they made the exact same mistake in Chechnya as they did in Afghanistan. But yes. they've really taken an interesting approach to their military affairs. Well, I think the U.S. took their success in Kuwait and applied it to Iraq. And yes. It's it's interesting to see kind of how those events inform future actions. Yeah, I think um, it's a good analysis, and I think we really should look at what the Russians are doing in Syria and and examine how effective they've been at building up, you know, the government there and supporting that government and making sure that they can clear out all the other areas where they suspect uh, other forces, uh, you know, where other forces, where opposition forces exist. Now, you know, the United States has made a huge blunder as well in uh, the northeastern part of Syria by abandoning uh, with, you know, a minimal amount of troops that we had there, about 2,000, abandoning that Kurdish region, really setting off the area uh, to create essentially a power vacuum, an opening for Turkey, and uh, a play between Russia and Turkey and Syria. Now, those who us who might be more cynical might say, well, that's a, that was a really smart move by the United States to really uh, engage both Russia and Turkey in a conflict that the United States is no longer a part of. Mm-hmm. I think the Kurds would disagree greatly, and we have to really then question what type of strategy it is that we're pursuing if that is uh, our goal, is to create more conflict, greater vac- power vacuums, uh, but that is, in effect, what we've done, and and there are many who are suffering as a re- as a result. And and it was an inexpensive uh, right. operation we were running in the Northeast. And I mean that ties back to our larger soft power conversations. It's, it's in terms of the U.S. military, that might be one of the most altruistic things we were doing. The Kurds are some of our oldest allies with really no not massive strategic implications. You know, I mean, they were never going to take over Syria. They had their land and we protected them and they protected us. And abandoning that just seems like a distillation of what Trump wants to do with the world. If it's not going to, you know, turn our numbers green, we're going to pull away, which it wasn't. It was, it was a money suck, but it was one of the few 
really good things our military was doing. Yeah, we were getting value for money on, yeah, on exactly. that particular, the same way that we had in Kosovo, where there had been right. no uh, American fatalities. So, um, you know, for during the, uh, for, with I-4, this president came into office promising that he would withdraw our forces uh, from around the world and end wherever, you know, wherever we were engaged in conflict. He does not see it, I think. I don't think he sees it as a place where we belong. It's not our neighborhood. He's, he uses this type of terminology. Um, you know, uh, this it's part of the America First promotion uh, that allows for him to do this in really hasty and uh, unconsidered ways. And uh, the cost is not so much to the United States in the short run, it's really to those people who are on the ground in all these areas. I'm glad you brought up Kosovo. So I do want to wind back a bit. I know you covered the Yugoslavian wars when they broke out. Kosovo was you know, a few years away still. I'm just curious about you know what the Yugoslavian wars can say about the temperature that America has for intervention. I mean, I think in 1994, a PBS documentary of the UN's uh, uh, place in uh, Bosnia aired on national TV. So this was something that was like prime time viewing. I don't think there's been any footage of Syria going on in terms of, you know, coming into an American living room. Uh, what do you think has changed about our appetite for foreign intervention and just kind of our place in the world? Well, you know, from a news perspective, we take our lead from the White House, right? What happens and what is said from that podium, and especially when it is dominated by someone who likes the podium, who spends as much time in front of it as possible, uh, really defines what we look at. And and so there's that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is we don't have the resources that we once had as a news gathering society to really be as far flung as we were back then. That was sort of, those were sort of the fumes of our international reporting days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the end of our golden era of international reporting, uh, it soon died out after the conflict in, in uh, Yugoslavia. So I think those two things, uh, more than necessarily a citizen's appetite or interest in uh, foreign affairs, uh, have driven this. Uh, but even when we did have this golden era, you know, the, the polling numbers of Americans who were interested in international affairs was never above 9% or it sort of always kind of hovered right around there. And so we have to just kind of understand that Americans, just like uh, unlike others around the world, don't worry about whether or not Italy sneezes or Syria coughs. Um, they should, as far as pandemics are concerned, but, but as far as geopolitics are concerned, these are marginal uh, effects that would, that would occur uh, to our larger strategic uh, standing in the world. So it we just, don't watch it as much. Right. I mean, garage uh, probably shouldn't matter that much to American interests, but in you know that time, I don't know why, it just it had to be in PBS. It's just, it's wild to me that, this is only 30 years ago. Yes. And now we bear, we don't even know what's going on in Aleppo, which is a 4 million person city. Yeah. Well, we barely know what's going on in New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, what we know about mostly is what's happening in the, about a 400 meters, you know, 400 square meter area around the Rose Garden. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is where we've moved our cameras and our expertise. And it's, it is White House centric. It barely looks at the Congress. So, um, you know, the news is dominated by the person who recognizes that the more time you get on air, the greater your name recognition and the more likelihood that you have to get reelected. And so uh, where do you see you, your role in this? Because I know you're a columnist, you have a radio program, you're at Hoover, you're at CU. I mean, you have your, you know, your thumb in a lot of different areas. Is your goal here to get a better global understanding of the world? Or you just kind of, you follow whatever is interesting to you? Well, I know that the column gets read, uh, you know, it's in 30 newspapers and uh, it lands. Uh, so I'm on, I'm, I'm on the editorial op opinion editorial pages of the Miami Herald on Fridays in print. So I know that my paper lands at Doral and at uh, Mar-a-Lago. And, uh, and that it gets picked up by a number of those guests. Um, and, and I'm told that in certain instances, it actually gets read and even at times has an effect. So, um, so that gives me great comfort that I know that I can at least get my ideas to some of the people who are making decisions at this point. When I was at the State Department with the Fulbright, I was able to also make the rounds within the institution itself and, and raise the red flag where I saw it was necessary and, uh, and did. Uh, I've written a book about uh, foreign media and how it often operates as uh, spy organizations or intelligence gathering operations and, and diplomatic outposts. And that's had some effect. Uh, I think uh, I was helping and advising and consulting with those who were interested in the premise of my book and the research that I did. And I think to some degree it helped with this recent um, labeling of the five Chinese news organizations as foreign missions, um, at least a part of uh, providing some of the support for that argument to this administration. So, you know, what we can most hope for as citizens and as those who are in journalism and who try to just do honest research is that those ideas get conveyed and in the best of all cases get acted upon. Uh, but you do your marginal role. In California, my role is, I think, a little more activist. Uh, I do have direct uh, line to the leadership of the state. You're well connected. I'm very well connected to the leadership. Well, your, your, your sons, too, apparently, are informing you about coronavirus. So. Absolutely. They are, they are able to be a part of this, in particular when you know, we are a Pacific Rim state. And so we are keenly aware of how important Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia are to, uh, to the future of our, our state of California. And, and we try to maintain good relations while being keenly aware of all of the challenges and, mm -hmm. and the longer term strategic interests that are held by China. But I mean, up until now, we've held the perspective that China's peaceful rise and, and entry into the global trade system was a positive thing and, and has brought you know, so many people out of poverty. I mean, that is something that we should be proud of as Americans, right. that we have contributed to this, probably the greatest welfare uh, uh, benefit to the world ever uh, in such a short time. So uh, I think the interest is to really just make sure that we check that power 
and that we check it in a way that ideally is through dialogue and diplomacy rather than confrontation. Mm -hmm. And the only way you do that is through understanding, but really with a clear-eyed understanding of what it is that's going on in Beijing in the Communist Party, what it is that authoritarian states default to when it comes to challenges to their power. And so uh, not approaching this in any Pollyanna-ish way, but in a realistic, honest, direct, diplomatic, ideally way is what's going to be uh, helpful. So I, I try to uh, be a part of that dialogue as well, while at the same time, some of my writing and some of my criticism and research finds how we should be uh, clear-eyed about their mm -hmm. activities. Yeah, and in the interest of being clear-eyed, you know, if you're a rising power, probably makes sense to be peaceful if you're weaker than the strongest power. Once you're stronger, and then, you know, you have a little more wiggle room. That's right. Always good to bring in Thucydides into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, uh, so we've gone from uh, World War Z to uh, the Thucydides trap and uh, Graham Allison and, of course, Thucydides himself. Yeah, I'd rather read Max Brooks than Thucydides, but yeah. good enough plug. Uh, so we're at the edge of our time. Um, I know you've written some things talking about how this is a climate change test case with coronavirus how there is quite a bit of learn. What, what do you see as the big silver lining, at least something we can take away as a society while we're all trapped in our offices and kitchens and living rooms? Uh, well, you, you brought up the column that I wrote uh, a week ago, and um, I think that is one of the silver linings. I mean, really, we've come to this pause in uh, human activity. Uh, and so as a result, we're seeing that the effects of not driving or manufacturing uh, the effects on our environment are rather positive. Uh, so maybe we can take some of what we're seeing and some of what we're learning through this experiment, this unintended experiment, and see if we can apply it as we go forward, as we restart slowly uh, back into what we would call normal activities and define and decide whether those are normal or not, or maybe there are too many abnormalities in the way that we conduct our industrial approach to life or in our, in our capitalist um, approach to commerce. And, and, uh, and I think all those things are currently being questioned. Um, I think another silver lining is maybe if we pay attention to some of the smaller countries, as we talked about in the front end, and how they really consider survival and, uh, and resilience uh, a part of their core competence. Uh, if we can take learning from that and apply it, even in the smallest possible ways at the state level, the federal level, and also at the smallest city level, then I think we'll come out of this uh, with some really important lessons. Um, so I, I'd say those two things, you know, enjoy the environment while it's really clean and fresh and, and uh, you know, unspoilt. Uh, and let's look at how we get through uh, the, the future in a much saner and better way. Thank you for the positive note. Uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for lending us your time. And, uh, you know, use your connections with your sons in the Chinese government and the California government for good, I hope. But, but uh, I hope, hope to have you back sometime. All right. Thank you for your time and, uh, and nice podcast. Thank you for having me on. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University